Hey there, welcome back to another episode of Ranching Reboot, your go-to podcast for innovative thinking in agriculture. I'm your host, Brian Alexander, and my guest this week is Kate Cavanaugh, who owns a butcher shop in Colorado and recently moved back east due to high land cost, which we examine that one a little bit. We talk about the challenges of running a small business, the intrinsic ties we share with the land, and how government regulations can impact us all. As usual, we'll talk about unique insights on our food system and what it means to be truly sustainable. It's a conversation you don't want to miss, so tune in and let's reboot our thinking about farming, ranching, and food systems together. Support for this episode is provided by my amazing patrons on patreon.com slash redhillsrancher. The last two weeks I've had some polls running on Spotify. You can open up your Spotify app to vote. The results are in. I kind of asked if y'all like the cowboy poetry intro style that I did a few weeks ago. The survey says most of you did not, so those are going to go away for a while. Chat GPT was writing him anyway. I'm not that creative on short notice. This episode is brought to you by C90 Ocean Minerals, the first step in regenerative agriculture. C90 offers a complete spectrum of natural minerals and trace elements that feed soil biology, enzymes, and fungi to regenerate your soil matrix and improve soil fertility. Soil with improved microbiology and mineral nutrition will grow protein-packed and nutrient-rich pastures that your animals will thrive on. Plus, our premium mineral salt offers five times the valuable minerals and trace elements versus leading competitors. Give us a call at 717-580-1458 and our experts will develop a custom program that fits your operation. Or visit our website to order smaller quantities, including for your garden. Visit c90.com and use the promo code REBOOT to save 10% today. That's 717-580-1458 or sea-90.com. Promo code REBOOT. There's also a link down below in the show notes and on my link tree. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But you said starting's the worst part. Well, I guess we're just going to start it off. I'm here with Kate Cavanaugh from, uh, well, I'm not sure where you're from anymore because you said no. you're from Denver, but you've moved around um, and, and we've been chatting here for a few minutes. So we're just going to get right back into it. So you said that you, you've had a butcher shop in Denver for the last 10 years. Yeah, that's correct. I'm not sure where I'm from anymore either is the honest truth of it. And I think that we're we're so tied to place. And I, I recently made a big move and I feel like a bit of a fish out of water where I am. Tied to place. I'm I'm kind of in the same place that I've always been. Um, I'm kind of living in the house that I was born in, <laughs> as a matter of fact. Uh, it's beautiful. And there's, there's something to be said about tied to place and and roots and roots running deep and sometimes they uh i'm I'm struggling for i'm struggling for some metaphors this morning um you know roots that bind ties that bind maybe yeah. it's not always the things that uh anyway 
You know, I think we're made out of place. I think about this a lot, right? We eat from place, at least we have historically. I think that that is less true now with the globalization of the food system. But theoretically, we eat from place and we interact with our circadian biology in place, right? What time the sun rises, what time the sun sets. I think especially as farmers and ranchers were exposed to the weather patterns of the day to cooler, you know, that sort of sine wave of temperature where it's cooler in the morning and warmer in the afternoon, and then it cools off again. And so we're made up of place as we eat from place and we interact with place. And that is the sort of elegant conversation that's happening with our biology. And I think that when you grow up in a place, right, I grew up out West in Colorado and eating from that place and spending time in that place. And then you move, there is this massive shift of everything you've ever known, right? Your Even your microbiome is made up of place. And I really think it takes us a long time to adjust. And so I was in Colorado most of my, most of my life. I was born and raised in Denver and moved around a little bit in my, in my late teens and early twenties, and then came back home to open up a, a butcher shop, Western Daughters in Denver. And that's been running for 10 years, but about two and a half years ago, my husband and I moved to a small farm in very, very upstate New York. And it has been, that's a little, that's a little backwards. Usually people go from the East coast out to the Midwest and the plains, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we ended up here and we were talking about this a little bit before we hit record. We ended up here because land prices were incredibly cheap and we really wanted to be on the farm. And as we looked at where we could get a small bit of land that had a house on it, the cheapest places were in the South and the Northeast. And Looking backwards, I think there are ways that we might have managed, but I think we were in a certain mind frame and our circumstances where we were just desperate and didn't quite see all of the options that might have been available to us. I was going to say, was that just maybe like a circumstance of a kind of a narrow window in time? You know, that you said two and a half years ago, so that's going to be first COVID summer, right? Summer. So we actually, we moved, we moved at the end of February. I guess it's been three years. We moved at the end of February, right before COVID. Oh, okay. Then that makes it a little more, I, I was just thinking like, you know, I imagine that first few months of COVID, there were some folks that, that were early adopters that were like, oh, I got to get out of here. I want to go somewhere else. And start listing property. And that's that's kind of what I was thinking maybe it was, is mm-hmm. you know, there was there was a lot of weirdness there in 2020 about, you know, people paying way too much money for stuff and oh yeah. People paying way too much money for stuff out in the Midwest and asking not enough for stuff on the coast. So I just I was wondering if it was one of those situations. Nope. We signed we signed on on our little piece of property in January of 2020. So we were ahead of that. So you were moving and trying to get settled in, in New York, upstate New York, when COVID hits. Yes, we were. That must be fun. (laughs) You know, in some ways it was. Like, in some ways, we just dug right in. 
and dove right into getting to know this piece of land and getting some animals and getting in our own rhythm of of farming and just had our noses to the grindstone. So I think in act- actually in some ways it was kind of fun. Okay. So let, let's go back to Denver. We still have Butcher Shop there, yes? Yes, we do. Okay, so why did we start cutting meat in Denver? It seems like that would be a, a pretty tough market to get established in. Yeah, so I have a kind of long backstory that I won't regale everyone with, but I was a vegetarian for most of my childhood um, and into my teenage years. And around the age of 20, decided to start eating meat again, actually, for health reasons. I was quite sick um, and felt that meat was a good starting place. And this was, you know, this was 15, 16, 17 years ago. And I really wanted to get to know farmers and ranchers that were raising my meat. That was the only way I could conceive of doing it. This was sort of early in the farmer's market, post Michael Pollan's omnivores dilemma, sort of return to looking at where your food came from. And I was really struck in that process that as my body started to heal, I also saw the power of agriculture to heal land, to bring back in biodiversity, to build soil organic matter and water retention and became really passionate about how I could be involved in the food system. I had a background in biology and primarily academia and wanted to do something else. And my husband is a master carpenter and I decided I wanted to learn how to butcher. And so we embarked on a year long journey of, of butchering, you know, and, and we're mostly cut and wrap to be, to be clear. I mean, we, we, process all of our own food on farm. We do all of our own slaughtering here, but we're mostly cut and wrap. And so we spent a year butchering thousands of animals and wanted to bring that back to my my home in Denver, Colorado, and open up a butcher shop and sort of bridge that urban and rural gap by telling these stories of farmers and ranchers across the front range in the city of Denver. Okay. So are you are are you buying animals from producers and then having them slaughtered at a facility then the then the primal brought to your butcher shop and bro- and broken down? Yeah, so we break down whole animals. They come in, beef comes in eighths, pigs come split in half, lambs come whole. And so we're doing all of the butchering in-house so that we can control our own yields, but they are slaughtered at a at a processor. So there's we're kind of the second middleman. Okay. And I'm just, I'm just wondering, are you, do you own the animal when it walks into the slaughter facility or are you buying it from the producer after it's chilled? After it's chilled, we buy hanging weight. Okay. That's reasonable. Yeah, I think so. And, and then you said, you like, I'm not sure I caught it right, but you're doing something a little different in New York. In New York, my husband and I just farm for ourselves. Okay. It, it is it is purely just raising all of our own food. And so all of our farmers and ranchers are within a 150-mile radius of the butcher shop in Denver. Same people for the largely that we've worked with for the last 10 years. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. So tell me... Tell me a little bit about the Groundwork Collective, because that was something I stumbled on um, through the links that you sent over. 
Yeah. So this is a couple of different things. This is, this was originally born. My husband and I built a, a farm. What would you call it? Like an aggregator of a farm finder so that people can connect with their food that has a whole bunch of different filtering mechanisms. So people can find what they're looking for close to home. And so that is Groundwork Collective. And it also houses my podcast. And so a year ago, after we had moved to New York, I really wanted to tell more stories about farming and ranching and agriculture and the intersections of human health and history and kind of how we got to where we are. And so that also houses my Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. Okay. We'll, we'll circle back to there. So I've just, sometimes I need a minute to come up with another question. Oh, please take your time. I know how that is. I want to go back to uh, growing up. What did you say, vegan or vegetarian? Vegetarian. Okay. Like, well, we can still get along. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I always feel that way. Vegan I, stuff. Well, I mean, vegan's tough, but I think eventually a lot of them come around again. So let, most of them. I think the statistic is something like eighty-five percent. Yeah, I think most people are only vegan, vegetarian for like seven, eight years. I think it's far less than that. I think it's less than a year. So let, let, let's talk about you and your experience with being a vegetarian and then coming back to the dark side and eating meat again. Like <laughs> it, you said it was uh, around you know, when Michael Pollan's book came out. You said that you you were a young lady and just and just kind of starting to get out. of. Tell me about that. Yeah, so I had made the decision to be a vegetarian at a very young age, uh, around the age of five. My parents indulged it. I don't think they should have, but here we are. Do you, uh, understand, do you know why you wanted to be a vegetarian? Yeah, I do. And it's it's kind of complex. You know, I had a, there's a lot of death in my childhood. I saw a lot of death and I understood a lot about death at a very young age. And I think I felt that this was one aspect of things that I could control that I could avoid death in our food system and have this illusion of control. I actually think a lot of vegetarians and vegans end up coming from this more emotional space of this feels like a space where I can control the unknown of life. And I carried down that path and, and really dug my heels in. And I think in my teenage years, it looked a little bit different, right? It looked a little bit more like an environmental awareness and, you know, deepening of animal welfare. And when I came up against some incredibly severe fatigue and some gastrointestinal issues, I had a craving. I had a craving for meat and I wanted to listen to that and to hear what my body was asking for and dove right in. And I was amazed at how quickly my health rebounded. I'm not going to, that, that's a totally believable story because I've heard it several other times and, you know, you, you see it play out on social media, you hear, you know, influencers and people on Twitter talk about, yeah, I, I gave up my vegan diet and I started eating meat or I've gone full carnivore or full keto and I feel so much better. Yeah. And it's, it's really wild to see those people getting attacked by, you know, by, by vegans and vegetarians. And, you know, you brought up some issues uh, you know, and, and some quote reasons why 
Um, and the two big ones are death, death in the food system. Like, oh, well, animals shouldn't suffer. We should take all the death out of the food system. If everybody eats plants. No animals need to die. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that's an incredibly simplistic view of the food system. Mm. Very simplistic. And then uh, you talked about the environmental benefits, you know, because people say, oh, you know, trees are good. Cows are bad. Cows are killing the environment. Methane, cow burps, whatever. Okay. You know, th- there's a point. CAFOs are not great. Let's just say that. Feedlots, chicken houses, hog houses are not great. They've got some problems, but they're also not going to go away anytime in the near future. No, they are not. And chicken barns and hog houses and feedlots, but vegans have a point. Like they have a point from an animal welfare point of view. Mm-hmm. But again, that's just looking at a really narrow part of it. I agree. And, you know, when we're talking about environmental in, environmental impacts and death in the food system, <laughs> you know, I'm a big proponent of pasture of, of cows should be on pasture until their very last day. And so I, am I. And I get that doesn't work for everybody. Okay. Me too. Now, whether, whenever we want to take a tractor or a swather or a sprayer through a field, you're going to kill something. Like I'm, I'm sorry, that's the way it is. You take absolutely. That, you take out that. You take out your disc or your chisel plow or whatever your tillage tool. There, there's, there's rodents, there's mice, there's things that live in the ground. You destroy their houses. Mm-hmm. When you take out that sprayer and you put that herbicide on your corn or your soybeans or your wheat or whatever, okay. You put that herbicide, that pesticide, that fungicide out there. Well, that herbicide and that pesticide kills a little leaf aphid, but it also kills like 90 other species of small bugs that bigger bugs eat, that birds eat those bigger bugs and bigger birds eat those. And, and we knock these little legs out from underneath our food web. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's just a bug. It's just a microbe. Mm -hmm. We don't need to worry about that. And then suddenly all the grasshoppers are gone. There's no birds anymore. And we wonder where all the wildlife went. Well, Mm -hmm. We got to we got to maybe look at some of these other things. So back to the death in the food system. Okay, yeah, if everybody could eat apples, that would be great. You just pick an apple off a tree. Now everybody can't eat apples. I mean, we need some protein. We need some like uh, oh, well, let's just say tofu, which is grown from which is made from soy. Which soy is kind of an interesting plant that you know our digestive system can't digest soy without it being fermented first. Nope. Did you know soybeans were originally a throwaway crop in Southeast Asia and Eastern Asia? Does not surprise me. The rice farmers would grow soybeans in between rice crops to add fertility back to their soil. Sure. I assume soy is leguminous and is going to fix nitrogen. Yes. Yes. 100%. So some of the things that we eat you know, like, okay, tofu. Great. I mean, I, I'm sure I've eaten it accidentally once or twice when I've had, like, <laughs> when, when I've been in Asian cuisine, but never on purpose. Not because I hate it. It's just because I don't really see a point. It's like, okay, fermented bean curd. Like it has like a quarter of the good stuff in it that, that beef does just put beef in the fried rice. We'll be all mm-hmm. happy. Mm-hmm. But in order to grow 
all the soybeans for tofu and you know what else they want to synthesize it in got to clear a lot of land yes and we don't talk about the environmental devastation from no. you know monocrop almond groves or monocrop avocado groves no we don't talk about that well everybody wants to talk about the monoculture corn and soybeans and cotton and wheat which yeah just as bad but we don't talk about like the monocrop um I don't know, palm oil plantations. Nobody wants to talk about palm oil plantations and how much environment, rainforest environment that has been just right. absolutely laid to waste so we could have palm oil plantations because we can't, we're not supposed to fry stuff in, in beef towel and pork lard anymore. So we got to fry everything in palm oil. Like, mm -hmm. and we're being environmentally friendly, right? Mm. Uh huh. Well, I mean, that's what they're selling us, right? is this idea that we're being environmentally friendly when I think that death is inherent to our food system. You cannot take death out of the food system. It is just part and parcel. And I think that you bring up a beautiful point because I think the death of biodiversity, when you have a monocrop of kale, of avocados, of soy, of peas to grow pea protein isolate to put in a Beyond Burger. And I think at once you're looking at two different things. You're looking at extreme reductionism, right? That we're looking at individual parts rather than how they interact with the whole. And I think you're looking at that both through the lens of human nutrition. Okay, we're just going to eat this, this soy product that is completely divorced from anything our human biology has ever known in the last 200, 300,000 years of modern Homo sapiens. And you're looking at extreme reductionism in the form of monocrops and their effects on that greater system, which includes things like your water cycles, your methane cycles, your nutrient cycles that are incredibly important. And this sort of narrow view of what you're what you're doing to the land because you have death of small mammals you have an emptying out of biodiversity and of trophic cascades that is going to wildly alter that habitat but i think you also have the death of 1 billion microorganisms per teaspoon of soil and what that represents in the soil food web and as you look at the united states where we have lost over half of our topsoil endowment in just 200 years and lose some 20 billion plus tons of topsoil each year, you're looking at a massive loss of all of those microorganisms in the soil. 1 billion microorganisms per teaspoon, uh, 10 billion viruses per teaspoon of soil, uh, miles of mycelial networks in a single shovel full. And so I think that there's a lot of reductionism that's happening on both sides and ignoring the sort of interconnected whole where every piece is part of that. Lots of lots of little threads to pull in there. Uh, it, that's how we get to where, you know, we end up in a position like we're in with our food system, with our health system, because we try to have this reductionist view and we can just, we just want to isolate it down and say, well, we just want people to get better. We just need people to be healthier. We just want people to eat better. People just need to have access to, you know, clean, healthy food. 
Mm. Why, how are we going to define clean, healthy food? <laughs> you know, we've got to mm-hmm. make that definition so broad to keep everybody happy that we're calling stuff food that doesn't have any actual food ingredients in it that's so heavily processed, you can leave it on the counter for a month and it won't yeah. get furry. Yeah, with no nutrient density right? Because when we're talking about meat, we're talking about true nutrient density, that all of those trace minerals are there, that all of those amino acids are there, and all of those secondary compounds are there. When you're talking about the work of people like Fred Provenza or Stefan Van Vliet and or Dan Kittredge, and you're looking at this whole, you know, what Stefan calls the dark matter of nutrition, uh, all of these phytochemicals like terpenes and carotenoids and tocopherols that are making up this sort of mysterious and incredibly nutrient dense matter in our food. Um, yeah, because it's not all carbs are created equally. Not all protein is created equally. No, not all vitamin B6 is the same. And the difference is, is how, how these substances are, are synthesized either in nature Hmm. or in the body Mm -hmm. and not in a lab. Cause when it's done in a lab, that's when it doesn't work in the body or in nature, at least can't be reduced to that. And I mean, this is, and I think this is illustrated really well when we look at studying soil itself, that you can't actually study it in a lab because it it dies. You have to study it in situ. It is inextricably interconnected to everything else. You cannot isolate it. And I think the same is true of our nutrients. We cannot synthesize them in a bioreactor for cultured meat. We cannot piece them together out of pea protein and canola oil and have that represent at all what that once whole food represented throughout history that is tied to sun and tied back to place and tied back to the soil food web and tied back to all of the relationships that make it what it is, which is irreducibly complex. I just saw an article yesterday. Another study came out and I forget, I forget which fake meat company they did it on, but they're starting to come out. They've, they've been around long enough. They've got, they're doing the research about the actual environmental impact of all these fake meat products. And it's like, they're saying that it's shocking how much worse fake meat is for the environment than regular CAFO feedlot beef with orders of magnitude worse for the environment than pasture system. I mean, we're talking like, I, th- I think it's 25 times the emissions for CAFO versus pasture finish system or something like that. There's like, it's there's a- another magnitude beyond that for beyond burger of how yeah. bad they are. And I think it depends on how your energy accounting looks. Um, One of my favorite studies came out of West Jackson's Land Institute in the late 90s. Uh, Him and this gentleman did an energy accounting. They called it the Sunshine Farm. I I can send it to you. And it's this really beautiful energy accounting of everything that goes into the farm. And this gentleman looked all the way back to the energy output of mining iron ore in Michigan to make tractor parts. And so I think about this study often in that we can trace 
very far out the environmental impacts of something like a Beyond Burger. And it goes it goes beyond the the monocrops that we're talking about or the harvesters or the combines or the tillers and into how much, you know, fossil fuel is being used in those situations the uh, mechanization of the factory where those are produced, right? The the plastic and the cardboard of all of that packaging. And I mean, you can kind of start teasing this all the way back out to look at a massive environmental impact to basically try to recreate what nature has already given us. Well, there is, there's one, one of those kinds of fake me that, where they're growing them in in the uh, in the lab, not mm-hmm. the PI cultured protein, me, cultured me, yeah. That they have to use uh, bovine growth serum mm-hmm. to grow that, and they have to have like just a, a a really large quantity of bovine growth serum to make one quarter pound patty of cultured meat. And they're like, "Oh, this is the future. This is the future of meat. This is the future of meat." Where do we get bovine growth serum from? It's one place. There's one source for that. And that's when a pregnant cow inadvertently goes to the packing plant. Yep. Like you want to talk about preventing death in the food system because you're eating cultured meat. Yeah. We're not. What hubris. I mean, this, this is like, for me, like what hubris. And and they're thinking like, okay, we're going to get we're going to use this cultured meat substance that we need bovine growth serum to grow. We're going to use this and tout this as a replacement for beef. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. You can't be dependent on a product that you're going to replace. That's not how supply chains and logistics work. No, but I think that we are so deep down, you know, the reductionist rabbit hole. And I think we can po- we can kind of look at a couple of different places where we get into some extreme reductionism. Um, I think that, you know, our shift from hunter-gatherer and into agriculture 13,000 years ago, there's some reductionism that happens. But I think that we get further divorced from some of these places when we see the work of Descartes that really, you know, separates mind and matter, looks at the mechanization of each individual part during the scientific revolution and Newtonian mechanics. And then I think this gets further pushed along as we see the sort of industrial revolution and the idea of really mechanizing everything. And I think that you see something that is in service, not to health and not to nature really, and not to, not to the environment, but is in service to the bottom line, that this is something that can be produced, that can be controlled, that can be centralized and I think that we've been trending towards that increasingly over the last 100 years, that this is a truly centralized product. And I think that it's being done under the guise of health or environmental sustainability, when really it's the opposite. And I think that the more you follow those threads of, okay, what does it take to produce this? The more mental gymnastics it takes to believe that this is a better product. And then you get down to, you know, and then you start asking the questions, start peeling back those layers. And a lot of times you get back to, well, we just got to feed the world or this mm-hmm. is the way we've always done it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, 
I'm just not sure that there's really any of those arguments that that work anymore. No. You know, the we 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 go to feed the world. Okay, industrial ag, you got to feed the world. Let's break that down for just just a sec here. 80 to 85% of the world is fed from subsistence agriculture. Yes. So we're talking we're going to feed the world 15 to 20% of okay. Feeding the world. What are we feeding the world? We are not feeding the world number two dent corn. We are not feeding the world soybeans. And we are not feeding the world cotton. No. I mean, yeah, almost most people on earth eat something derived from wheat at least once a week. Unless you're, you know, total celiac, that's fine. You need wheat. But corn, I mean, 98 plus percent of the corn we grow goes to animal feed. Almost all yes. the soybeans go or to, ethanol. Yeah. Either animal feed or ethanol. Like, oh, don't even, I don't even really want to start <laughs> on the whole ethanol thing right now. Uh, we won't, we won't go down that rabbit hole. Uh, yeah. That one's bad too. Um, we're, what were we saying? Subsistence farming. And I think yeah. that, that we can't feed the world. And I think that this is really important because not only can we not feed the world, but we are actually breaking people's ability to feed themselves in the way that they have for, for millennia, right? That it's this idea that we'll come in and offer these alternatives and break people's relationship to place, you know, to come back what we were talking about earlier is that you're, you're eating from place. You have a relationship with your food, with your landscape. You have a vested interest. You are, you know, enacting what I think is a biological imperative in, in human DNA to raise food, to connect to food, to connect to environment and place through food. Yeah. When they say we've got to feed the world and they live in a food desert, that's that's really disconcerting to me you know we've got to feed the world we got to feed the world brother you live in a food desert like there's there's one place within 30 miles to get fresh food but there's five within 10 miles that you go buy anything you want out of a freezer case that's ultra processed mm -hmm. like the the worst thing to happen to the planes is dollar general started selling food oh because, I mean, we know what's in there. Yeah. I mean, it, it's the absolute lowest quality, most heavily processed, heavily engineered, mm -hmm. quote, thing that they can call food that has a very marginal nutritional benefit. Yeah. Like, yeah. You should need it. Yeah. That's where so many of our people in the plains end up shopping and getting some of and getting a majority of their nutrition. Why? Because yes. we're in a food desert. Fresh food's hard to get out here. Why is it hard to get? Because it's all grown in California or Mexico. You know, it, I I get tired of, of hearing how great Kansas is for agriculture. We grow, mm. I mean, we grow corn, soy, wheat, and cattle. Yeah. We can grow anything. I mean, we're in zone 5B down here. Yeah. A little more, it's a little different. We can grow almost anything here. Can't really grow nuts, fruits, kind of a crapshoot. But there's a lot of stuff we can grow here that we don't. Like um, Kansas has a significant portion of like 10% of the nation's red potatoes. Hmm. Interesting. Sure. 10% of the nation's red potatoes. Like, wow. 
Where yeah. was this potato farm? Yeah. It's like 4,000 acres of potatoes. You know, it's interesting, too, because I think one of the things that I think a lot coming from coming from the high plains is that one thing that the plains grows incredibly well is meat. I mean, that is its specialty. It co-evolved grasslands and bison co-evolved with one another, and it really functions as that ecosystem. But at the same time, I think you raise an incredible point. We grow most of our food in Mexico, California. I love to point at garlic, right? I think it's something like 98% of the of the, all the garlic in the United States is grown in a single county in California when alliums grow readily almost everywhere. And so we've just put all of our eggs in this one basket. And then I also think that you see now, especially, you know, last year was the 100 year anniversary of the Colorado River Compact, where they decided how the allotment of the Colorado River would flow between seven states. Um, And they decided on, on three very wet years leading up to 1922 and sort of overestimated what was there. And I think we are now seeing a real struggle with with water in that area. And I love illustrating this particular point with you cannot collect rainwater in Denver because technically that is California's water to grow all of these uh, different crops. Wow. Colorado River water rights and the Colorado River Compact. You want to talk about a can of worms. Yes, an important one, though, because I think water is going to be a big part of the conversation going forward. It has to be. And it's been coming for a very long time. Like water, when they started to trade water futures on the (laughs) Chicago Board of Trade without requiring physical delivery of the commodity, like, I'm sorry, that's a red flag for anybody that's involved in, in agriculture and water rights. That's a that's a bad thing that's coming, and maybe we'll get into explaining that in a future episode. But the Colorado River Compact, I, I, I really have super mixed feelings about irrigation, right? Because I do too. And, and I think it's a complex topic. There's so many different ways you can irrigate, and... Okay, so let's say we're in southwest Colorado and we're going to pull a little water out of a creek and flood a pasture to grow some grass, right? Well, a lot of that water will soak back in the soil or go back to the creek Mm -hmm. bed, but it really doesn't. A lot of it evaporates Mm -hmm. because when we're irrigating in an ultra dry environment, we lose a lot to what um, Evo transvaporation. I think that's the right word. That sounds right. Right, that we'll, sounds right. I don't know the technical term for that. We'll roll with it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, th- there's a lot of evaporation. A lot of evaporation with pivots, too. And, you know, with pivots or with flood and, you know, whether you're taking water, like some of the things they do for irrigation, like there's a. I saw one up and I think it was like Idaho where they're pulling water out of the Snake River mm-hmm. and they've got 10. 1200 horsepower electric motors running pumps and that's just the first pump station to pump it up halfway up the hill they had another pump station halfway up the hill to pump it over the hill and they had like i don't know 20 or 30 some pivots on the other side of this hill but they had like 
it was it would take 30,000 plus horsepower to pump the water over this hill. Like they had their own electrical substation there where their water pumps were. Like it's it was a pretty serious deal. Okay. Then we can go down to Texas. Texas Panhandle. We're going to use a diesel engine or a natural gas engine, and we're going to drill a hole five, 600 feet deep, and we're going to pump a couple thousand gallons a minute up that. Mm-hmm. Hey, at, at what point are we trading? We're trading fossil fuel. We're using fossil fuels to bring up water that's been in the ground for thousands of years. Yes. We're using energy that's millions of years old. Yes to pump fossil water that's thousands of years old to put on a crop that probably shouldn't grow where we're growing it mm-hmm. to grow that crop, harvest it with yet more diesel fuel. And that crop is going to go one of two places. It's either going to go to a feedlot mm-hmm. or it's going to go to an ethanol plant. Mm-hmm. We can talk about feedlots all we want. When we go to an ethanol plant, we're going to use even more energy and more water to turn it into a fuel that's less shelf stable and less energy dense than yes. the fuel we started with. Yes. And we're going to call that a win. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, it gets even, oh, the rabbit hole on the ethanol gets even better than that now. And I just found this out over the last couple of days. So a couple of weeks ago, I had Paul Brown on and we talked about a carbon pipeline that was going from ethanol plants in Iowa past the Brown Ranch in North Dakota to Western North Dakota, and they were going to inject this carbon dioxide into a rock formation 5,000 feet deep. They're going to build a 24-inch pipeline, like a 1,000-some miles. Okay? Yep. Here's how, that, here's how that works. They get a write-off $145 for every ton they store like that. What? Yep, 45Q tax credit in the Inflation oh. Reduction Act. They get a right $150 a ton for every ton they store like that. Okay, I have a carbon contract on my ranch. I'm not getting $150 a ton. No. Like, I, and this just seems so totally backwards. And it's, it does? Well, no, it doesn't when you think about it from the aspect that government doesn't care about us they don't care about the individual anymore government will put in place programs to benefit big business and big donors because big business and big donors can afford to hire lobbyists yep and lobbyists correct (laughs) and lobbyists have money to help pay to get legislation passed yes that's just how the world works it's in service to what I have a friend that calls this the corporate organism. My friend Anthony Gustin calls it the corporate organism, right? It is almost an emergent property of humans where it is all in service to the bottom line. So this North Dakota pipeline deal gets even better. So in North Dakota, there's three people on a public utilities commission, which is, you know, the, the public body that's, you know, bringing this pipeline to North Dakota three people on it one of the members of the public utilities commission has had to recuse themselves from any of the carbon pipeline proceedings because guess where the carbon's getting injected (laughs) on their property Mm -hmm. nothing to see here there is no collusion nothing to see 
nobody had any unfair advantage in getting that to happen. This is all, all on the up and up. This is all on the up and up. Everything here is fine. There's nothing to see. Mm-hmm. Move on. If you think otherwise, you're a paranoid lunatic conspiracy theorist. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> yeah. This is this is how this is how it goes. And I think that this is how we've put farmers and ranchers in a situation where artificially suppressing the price of food with, you know, various subsidies, the way things are lobbied for exactly what you're talking about. And then you have farmers and ranchers making an average of one and a half percent margins and, you know, driving down this incredibly narrow highway at a very high speed where there is no margin of error. And then I think you take the average age of farmers in America is about 58. It's turning over. I thought it was uh, way higher than that. I looked it up before this. I thought it was 68, but according to, to things, it's 58. I think it's higher. I think that's a, I looked this up this morning. I think they moved the goalpost on us. I do too. I do too. And then I think you see, and a woman named Madeline Fairburn just wrote a really interesting uh, book that's free. You can you can download it as a PDF um, called Fields of Gold about the financialization of, of farmland. And so under these pension funds, there is increasingly around 2007, 2008, uh, pension funds begin buying up farmland all over the world because it's an incredibly secure investment. And so TIAA, as of 2017, controlled over 2 million acres of farmland worldwide. And that is, you know, one one pension fund. And increasingly, that looks like between 2 and 4% of all hedge and pension funds. And so then you're having tenant farmers or just land that's allowed to desertify. And I think that when you put all of that together, we have a we have a complicated recipe for the future of our food system. Oh yeah. 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 Very complicated. And you know, you were talking about, you know, we've been talking about feeding the world and and that we're made from place. Mm-hmm. And I wrote down here regional flavor. Mm. And, you know, we think of like, there's, you know, I'm, I'm having trouble coming up with things specific, but like when you travel to Europe, I traveled to Europe several times when I was in the military, like places are known for their cuisine. Like they're mm-hmm. known for certain kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, can you get, uh, can you get a Capricola ham outside of Italy? Sure. It's different. It, it is different. different. You know, can you get um, like, you know, can you get a certain like get olives? Been to Greece enough times. Like their olives in Greece are way different. Like I can't even hardly eat an olive out of the grocery store here, whether it's out of a jar or a can. You keep your olives because there's these are not real olives. I've had them yeah. in Greece. That's what they taste like. So. As, as part of this globalization of the food system and the rise of, quote, food science, food science is kind of like the art of taking all the good stuff out that makes it different and, you know, subtly unique batch to batch and replacing it with stuff that makes it all the same and consistent for perfect mouthfeel and to make you want to eat more mm-hmm. and more and more mm-hmm. and more. Anyway, Hyper palatability. Hyper palatability, which like that's that's another rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. What I'm getting at is. Everything shouldn't taste the same. No. 
the honey that I can get here locally should taste different than the honey that my buddy in Texas makes that your friend of yours down the road in New York makes. It should all be different. Your chickens should taste different than mine. Yes. Your beef should taste different than mine. Yes. And it should taste different too from month to month, from season to season. And it should. And that's the way the nat- that's the way the natural system works. Mm-hmm. Right. But we try to force an unnatural system. Yes. We try to force our control on the system, our dominion on the system. And again, you know, the scientists show up hyper palatability, got to make mm-hmm. everything, you know, got to make everybody love everything and eat more. And it kind of the last few minutes, we kind of talked a little bit about, you know, the for-profit system and that that's the evils of a for-profit system. And these are some arguments and some discussions I've been having kind of internally in my own head. Like if I didn't, yeah, I mean, if I didn't, if there, there, if I didn't have to worry about turning a profit or if I didn't have, if I didn't have this monkey called government tax on my back or, you know, that just what it costs to comply with government and what they want us to do. If I didn't have to bear that cost. Like, what else could I do in my business? What else could I do with my land to improve it for future generations? Whereas now, you know, we have to struggle because, you know, what is it? Half of what you make, you got to give to the government. Yeah, essentially. Like we're, we're way worse off than medieval peasants. Like think we think they had it so rough because they had to give 10% to the king. Like, okay, we're given half. Yeah. So what could you do with your business if you were in service to quality, to connectivity within that place, right? Cattle back to grass, back to soil food web, back to your greater community of people. If it wasn't just about efficiency and yield. You know, I, I don't know. I haven't really thought much about that. Um, and I, I try not to struggle too much against yield. I mean, I try to be I try to be efficient as I can. I try to be leave a a light touch on the land and let the cattle get what they need from it. Um, yield is yield yields what it yields. Um, and if I could say that again, I probably would. But you know, it's the pasture is going to make what it's going to make. The yes. cattle are, you know, the genetics that I have wandering around in my herd, you know, I can't really do a whole lot to tweak that year, year to year. I mean, that's a slow, that's a slow, long shift. So I've just got to make use of what I've got and what mm-hmm. I'm given. And, you know, it yields what it yields. Honestly, I've got to be, you know, where I come in is I've got to be as efficient as I possibly can. And I've got to be able to push those animals to be more efficient where they're at, which, you know, we're doing with fences and whatnot. Um, I don't know. I, I would probably be more, a lot more likely to share or be open to sharing what I have and inviting more people in to see, Mm. to see the ranch. Um, 
you know, and, and then there's some governmental things in there, you know, like liability and, you know, all the liability insurance. Yeah. It got to carry when somebody besides the owner steps foot on the place. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a lot and that's not an inconsequential cost. And people can say, well, that's just the cost of doing business. Bullshit. We didn't need it a hundred years ago. No. Yeah. I mean, I think we were also farming in more community and my husband and I talk about this often. This, this isn't something that was meant to be done with one or two people with, you know, different skill sets. This is something that was meant to do meant to be done in with the village or at least, you know, in an intergenerational family unit. And so increasingly we are taking on a lot of work, a lot of stress, both physical, mental, financial, as sole proprietors, as you said at the beginning of this. And we probably shouldn't because I I was just sitting here thinking about indigenous folks and how they would pass on knowledge of hunting and how they would pass on knowledge of, you know, of cultivation, you know, the, the, the indigenous cultures that did cultivate crops and how they would pass on knowledge, that cultivation you have the elders, which kind of look like they were maybe out there just goofing off a little bit. They take the young kids. Well, they're teaching them all the, all the super tricks that they've learned in the 60 to 80 years of doing it. They're teaching those first. And then you go spend 10 years doing the nuts and bolts and the backbreaking labor in the prime of your life, you know, yeah. pulling the rows and doing the weeding. And then by the time you're the elder, you're remembering all those lessons and you know everything and you, and you keep passing that down the line. When we have, you know, one guy that's got a fleet of eight tractors that's hmm. responsible for farming 3,000 acres by himself. Yes. This is a marvel of efficiency. It is a monument to American technological progress and efficiency. Mm, Progress. But there's no sense in hitting a bullseye if you're aiming at the wrong target. And I think we've been aiming at the wrong target in ag for far too long. It shouldn't matter how much, like, one guy can farm. Like, that's not one guy farming it. Maybe it's one guy sitting in the tractor, but as we, as you talked about earlier, it takes labor to mine the iron. Yes. It takes labor to turn the iron into steel. It takes labor yes. to turn the steel into parts and it takes labor to turn the parts into a tractor. Yes. And so. these are even more opaque parts of an already opaque industry. So if we are talking about carbon and, and carbon emissions, right, that this would be a scope three thing. Okay. The scope one is just yours. Okay. The scope two is maybe your suppliers and the scope three is all of your sub assemblies all the way back to raw materials. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a scope three thing here. Mm-hmm. And like there's, there's very few businesses that really have a solid grasp on their scope one emissions. <laughs> yeah. And there's an order of magnitude less that have us that have an idea of their scope two. Yeah. I don't think that there's hardly any big companies that even want to crack into looking at what their scope three emissions are. Cause there's, if you make plastics, if you make metal, you make consumer goods, your scope three emissions are off the charts, buddy. 
It's massive and you can follow it too many places, right? Like if you really start to dig in there and you really start to trace back, it becomes an unwieldy object. It's what Timothy Morton calls a hyper object. It is something that has a finitude to it, but is almost too big for humans to comprehend. This would include something like all the plastic we've ever made. Or, you know, I just read an article where concrete, my friend James Connolly sent me this article about concrete is set to outweigh all biomass on earth by 2040. Like that is how much concrete we have made. And so that would be an example of a hyper object. And so I think when we're looking at something like scope three carbon emissions, we're looking at something that is too vast for us to understand. And it's also a single metric. It is reductive, right? Because carbon is, when we isolate carbon, I, carbon doesn't happen outside of a cycle that that is complex, right? And, and that dovetails with a methane cycle and a nitrogen cycle and a water cycle and a nutrient cycle and all of the machinations of an ecosystem that I think we scarcely understand. And I think we can draw an analogy here back to our conversation around just looking at carbs and fat and protein versus looking at carbs, fat, protein, trace minerals, secondary compounds, and, and phytonutrients, right? Like this, this is, we cannot isolate single variables. And this is what we keep doing in culture, in science, in food systems. Those phytochemicals and nano compounds and terpenes. Yeah. I, I, that's, that's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next few years in the, the food industry, food science industry, mm -hmm. and how they try to quantify that. Uh, Bionutrient Institute is looking at some of the quantification of that. And so that's Dan Kittredge and Stefan Van Vliet and, and, you know, I mean, off of Fred Provenza's work are really looking at, at quantifying some of those relationships. But I think that even then we'll find that there's a relationship underneath that, right? That it doesn't end at phytonutrients. And I always come back to the idea of, I mean, Shakespeare's, you know, there is more than is dreamt of in your philosophy that, that it, it just gets smaller and smaller and more and more interconnected. Yeah, the it seems like whether you want to go to a larger scale or to a smaller scale, everything's connected. Yes, I, I think about this is going to sound silly. Did you ever see the Powers of Ten movie in high school or middle school? I, I don't remember. I don't think so. Uh, so it's this it's this 10 minute film. I think you can you can find it. I like the old version from the 80s, but I think they've updated it and they go from Powers of Ten all the way out to the universe, right? All the way out beyond the Milky Way. And then they zoom back in all the way down to electrons, you know, it, it, in a in a cloud around a nucleus. So there's, we can go really big, really small, and they mirror each other. The micro mirrors the macro. As above, so below. Yes, yes. And that that's kind of what I was, uh, that's kind of what I was getting at. Um, yeah, hey, I got to take a quick break. Do it. And go recycle some coffee. So I'll be right. Yeah. Usually I can make it through one of these without having to take a break. 
Yeah. Sometimes I can't. <laughs> it depends. It's nice to be able to not feel glued to your seat too. I always, I always try to impress that upon people. I, I used to be pretty self-conscious about it. And then I just, then one day I was listening to Joe Rogan and he was like, he had to take a pee break. Yeah. But you know what? Joe Rogan, yeah. you can get away with it. So can I. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So uh, we were talking about flavor of the land, regional flavor, and how mm -hmm. everything's the same, just at different scales. Mm -hmm. like, I wonder every once in a while, you know, because, you know, the structure of matter and atoms. And mm. I wonder if, like, are we just, are we part of an atom of a much larger structure? Or yeah. are we part of a computer simulation that's part of a much larger structure? I, there's, I don't know. I mean, I think these are, these are some of those, those good juicy questions, right? I always think back to the real founders of, of quantum physics, right? In the 1920s, you have, you have Einstein, you have Niels Bohr, uh, you have Schrodinger and you have Werner Heisenberg and so much of what they talk about right in their more in their philosophy and less in their science is how deeply interconnected it turns out everything is at the smallest and the largest levels, right? One of my favorite quotes is Werner Heisenberg, um, founder of the uncertainty principle and probability of electrons says, we cannot speak of nature without also speaking of ourselves. Yes, yes, that's true. Mm -hmm. Those there were some really intelligent guys that uh, walking around on planet Earth back there in the 30s, 40s, and 50s that came up with some really, really scary technology. Mm. So let's let's go back to you. You said you um, from Denver, vegan. I want to know. I, I want to hear more about this move to New York. That's just it's just so interesting because it's like backwards from what everybody else has done in the last three years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This move broke my heart. I think I want to say that at the outset, because I, I love the West. I feel a deep sense of place there. And I have struggled to find that same connection to place here. And, you know, like we said before, we really made this move. We desperately wanted to be out and farming and could not find a way at the time to make it work with the prices of land out West being what they were what we could get in terms of carrying capacity, in terms of having infrastructure already there, whether that's barns or a home, right? Like we had a very, very small egg to work with and looked at where, where we could go, where our small egg would take us the furthest. And those ended up being places like very Northern New York, uh, Vermont, um, some places in the South, because land prices out West are cost prohibitive. Water again is an issue. If you're looking for water rights, uh, it's an, you know, depending on carrying capacity as well, as we were looking at places like Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, that feel so much like, like my home. Yeah. There's, Eastern Colorado. Hmm. Eastern Colorado is a very strange place. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, there's 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 some land that's affordable, but it may not have water. Yeah, and, and that's that, a problem. Yes, yes. It, we had the we actually had some friends that have left 
Northeast Colorado in the last uh, five years and moved to the Sandhills in Nebraska because mm-hmm. they were watching water. they were watching their water well very intently and watching the levels on it and didn't like what they saw and decided to get out while they while there was still a resource there that was valuable to sell. So. I think this is increasingly the issue, right? And I think we can trace some of this. There's some beautiful books. Um, David Owen's Where the Water Goes, Heather Hansman's Down River, uh, Cadillac Desert is is a real um, benchmark for that. But I've been having a lot of conversations around how the water conversation plays out, whether it's you know in Colorado or it's in Oregon, right, where you have some big tension between urban and rural environments where they are cutting. I have a friend who's in central Oregon, her water allotment got cut by 75%. So they could water golf courses in Western Oregon. And I think that this is, there's some increasing tension here. And that was part of our consideration was, well, if we can't buy a property with water rights, where are we going to be in five, 10, 15 years? Where are our kids going to be? So but let's just think about this. Before oil, before hydrocarbons really started powering our economy, most commerce was by water. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, so we had mm-hmm. sailing ships to cross the oceans. We could the Northeast, uh, there was a network of canals. Yes. They would, you know, they would have barges that were pulled by horses on towpaths. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's a pretty efficient way to move stuff if you don't have diesel fuel. By the way, absolutely. Um, but water was all the transport links, and that's where people lived. And we didn't have the mechanisms to drill a well 600 feet deep and pump water at the rate of a thousand gallons a minute up out of it. Okay. That didn't exist until just the last maybe 100 years. And so, where were people living 150 to 200 years ago, prior to the industrial revolution, before we had diesel powered water pumps, before we could, you know, had earth moving machinery and we could make all these nice straight roads across the prairies. Where are people living? They lived where there was water. That's why there wasn't anybody in the plains because the rain here isn't very consistent. And yes, and I mean, and at the time you had an ecosystem that did know how to handle water, right? Your absorption rate of native grassland is going to be very different than your absorption rates of, you know, current industrially, you know, conventionally cropped farmland. And so it knew how to make use of that. And, and the ecosystem that existed there, bison and all of that also knew how to make use of it. And let, let's be honest, heavy tillage with a hard pan about four inches deep has the moisture absorption capability only marginally better than concrete. Hmm. I mean, it's, I've watched, I've watched rain, I've watched a quarter inch of rain run off a farm field here, right across the street. I mean, on a two degree slope. A quarter inch of rain. Like, come on, guys. Like, if your soil can't absorb a quarter inch of rain, an hour. Yeah. Yeah. That's the problem. 
Yeah. And then you're taking with it, right? You're taking with it topsoil. You're taking with it fertility. It's not just the rainwater that's washing off. It's it's microbes. It's 1 billion microorganisms per teaspoon of soil, though I doubt that's what that is, where that is. But and it, it's taking with it any synthetic fertilizers you've applied, right? Uh, this is why we see algae blooms is because all of the phosphorus that we apply to our land is running off and suffocating waterways but it's hard to tie you know that that algae bloom in the lake back to one farmer but you can oh. tie it back, you could tie it back to a group or you can yes. tie it back to yes. an area and you know it, it it's such an interesting problem because yeah we all live on this earth and we should all take better care of it but we've been told lies and mistruths about what some of these chemicals do and what some substances do and what their overall effect is like, okay. Yeah. You know, everything's okay in moderation. You know, if you like to drink, you can have a couple of drinks. That's fine. Mm -hmm. Just do it in moderation. Dose makes the poison is another one. You know, what's the difference between somebody that goes and enjoys six beers on a Saturday night and somebody that enjoys four beers every day. Well, mm. the guy that does it every day is probably an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. The guy that just does it on the weekends, he's probably just a binge drinker. <laughs> are they both issues? Yes, but they're different kinds of issues. They are. The guy that has a couple glasses of wine at a holiday, is he a problem drinker? Most likely not. So what I'm getting at is like, yeah, the dose makes the poison. And... So maybe a little roundup here and there isn't a bad thing. Did I just say that? Yeah, I did. Maybe there's some trees or some brush or an organism that's really, really difficult to get rid of that you've tried every other biological control and just can't deal with. Maybe it's time to, you know, look at using some of that in a very responsible way. Different tool, maybe not. But they say that it's safe. Well, who's it safe for? What's it safe for? Mm -hmm. And yeah, and what it, is it? What concentration is it? Is it supposedly safe at? And and do you use just enough to get rid of the target problem, or do you use too much? And it's it's always a question of is this the appropriate tool to use for this problem? And we we end up using a lot of inappropriate tools. I do it because sometimes. The inappropriate tool is also the cheapest tool to do the job. Yes. I think there's two things at play here, too, that I want to bring up. I think that it's really important to note that the onus is not on the individual. And I think that this is something that we have been sold through marketing of corporations, of putting the onus of the climate back on the individual. Like if you would just stop using single use plastics or single use straws, or you would recycle, or you would eat this beyond burger, then it would move the dial when really the onus is on corporations. And so one thing that I think is important to kind of do is to kind of remove that burden at the individual level. And because it, it's too much for any one person when it really is, you know, jet use and, and big oil and big pharma and all of these different players that are using most of these resources. 
Um, and so I think that's one thing that's important to look at. And I mean, again, you have something that's reducing a system in a way that you can't. I mean, whether you're talking about something like Roundup or glyphosate um, or, you know, whatever they're going to call it next, Bear is going to call it uh, like Freedom Link or something. Um or you have something like synthetic fertilizers and the application of, you know, phosphorus, nitrogen, potassium, um, as if those were the only things that confer fertility. Yes. Chemical fertility versus chemical natural. fertility. Chemical yes. fertility versus natural fertility. But you were talking, you know, we've, we've talked about uh for-profit companies and that you know they're I'm not going to say that there's there's evils in that, but there are some downsides, you know, to to for profit corporate culture, and one of them we just get just kind of touched on about that the onus needs to be put on corporations. Mm -hmm. I can see your point. The problem that I have with that statement is who holds the corporations responsible, and if we mm. want to have something that holds the corporations responsible there has to be an organization that they're mm -hmm. answerable to more than just the consumers mm -hmm. so that means government mm -hmm. that was a good point that was a great point i love that you called me on that <laughs> i mean i look i'm a small government libertarian guy like i believe the best government would be less government mm -hmm. and but there, there's also the point where if you don't have some sort of regulating authority on it, it, something has to regulate growth, something has to regulate exploitation of resources, exploitation of others. You know, it, it's kind of been a theme that we've been going back and forth with for I don't know, the last hour and 15 minutes about government and for profit and their relationship. And they're, they have to be interconnected and the individual is also in there too. Yes. You know, so like with your butcher shop, the government, the government with like the food police rules and the EPA rules, they basically set the smallest size that you can be and be profitable mm -hmm. because we have to pay so much tax to the government. We've got to have, you know, the business license costs this much. You got to have insurance for this. You've got to have yes. this person there for this. You've got to have, you've got to meet all these different compliance standards, which drives yes. you to have a large, a large minimum size number mm -hmm. of employees just to get all that crap done. Yep. Then you can start adding on, you know, other productivity layers to increase profit. But the government is the one that sets that minimum size. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. I don't disagree. So if the government's the one that sets that minimum size and the government's the one, the government is the, the agency, the entity that comes up with the rules for, for revenue flow, for profit, and what you can, what, what are things you can and can do, can and cannot do with profit, and where you're allowed to spend money on and get your tax breaks. So basically, there's there's a large part of the government that does dictate business practices, like we talked about a few minutes ago with the with the 45Q credits and the Inflation Reduction Act. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, there's nobody that would be building a two foot diameter pipeline a thousand miles 
to inject CO2 into rock 5,000 feet deep if they couldn't write off $150 a ton of it. Guarantee you that would not be happening if it wasn't for government subsidies. No. Is that a necessary technology? It, again, it's like we're it. Is it a bullseye? Probably. Is it the wrong target? I'm almost sure. <laughs> okay. So, and and that's another example of of a governmental policy that, from a thirty thousand foot view, seems like the right thing, but on the ground level, drives a company to make a decision for profit. So let's talk about let's talk about companies for a second and. Let's just say there's two, two kinds that we'll talk about here. There's there's small companies like yours, like mine. We don't have shareholders. Okay. There isn't a 73 page corporate charter that all the shareholders have a copy of that spells out my duties as president and CEO, my fiduciary responsibility to the shareholders to return a profit. I don't have to do that. Like I am the shareholder. If I decide I don't need to have a profit this year because of environmental conditions, guess what? I'm not going to have a profit this year. And that's fine. I don't have a bunch of shareholders breathing down my neck. Yeah. There's a lot of companies that don't have that luxury. No. That have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders to turn profit. And they get siloed in like that's what they've got to do. And if the choice is grow and take more government subsidy in order to turn more profit for shareholders, that's what they're going to do it's going to be very difficult for a company that's owned by many different shareholders to make a pivot and do something that's environmentally responsible. That's going to cost them money or make them pay more taxes. Cause that's, and a, I think that's a good way to get sued by your shareholders. This speaks to something that you said before that it's not evil, right? We just have these structures, these guardrails that are in place that make it sort of impossible to get out of the structure that we have created. That this isn't the machinations of, of, you know, evil overlords. It is just kind of a product of the system that we've created. I love conspiracy theories. I can't see one here. I can't either. A, it's too complicated. And it's just, it's, it's all these interconnected rules that we have that create guardrails. I I think that's a great way to put it. They create guardrails and it's not necessarily like, I have a picture in my head, but I can't describe it, but yeah, it's guardrails and it keeps us in these lanes and keeps us all going in a, in a direction. Yeah. And at what point does the party end? Well, and I think, you know, there's a there's a gentleman named Mark Fisher, and this quote isn't attributed entirely to him, but it is easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. And and not not to dog on capitalism necessarily, but like we cannot imagine the end of the systems that are in place. Like they are so embedded in our culture. So, you know, you can leave capitalism out of it, but like the systems that are in place are so deeply embedded. We are so deeply inculcated in them that we can't imagine a way out of it and often imagine the end of the world instead. I don't think the Romans could see the end of their, could see their collapse coming either. I don't think mm-hmm. the Egyptians saw theirs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think the Incas, I don't think they saw theirs either. I, mm-hmm. I, and I think that that's part of the human condition is you don't see it coming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, you're in it and it's, it's not happening in like a, 
one, two, three, this is the end, right? Like it's just a, a it's just a slow process of unraveling. And while it's coming apart around you, you're just doing everything you can to keep from losing your shit, <laughs> to keep your life and to keep your people safe, right? Yes. That, like when, when there's a tornado around you, your circle of concern shrinks really mm. rapidly to just the people around you that you care about. Yeah. And then when it's over, then you can look back. Then you take a breath. And you get the benefit of that perfect hindsight and you go mm -hmm. say, man, how come I didn't see that coming? Or, oh, wow. How come we didn't do this? Mm -hmm. When really, you know, sometimes when we're presented with a shitty situation, you have to make a survival call in the middle of it. Yes, absolutely. And, and I think that's, is, is that where we're at? Are we in the maelstrom or are we getting ready to be in it? We're definitely not through it yet. No, I think, I think we're in it. And I think one of the questions is, are we able to harness the hindsight to have the foresight to build something different this time? Oh, that's a good question. And I'd like to think that we are, but I don't think, I don't think so. Um, I think what'll happen is the same thing that'll happen is the same thing that's happened probably a half a dozen times already in the last 2000 years mm. is or is like the, the current, the current dominating regime economics system of government, like basically us um, is due to begin to fail any day now, any year now. And again, it's one of those things like we're not going to notice that it's happening while it's happening because we're going to be so deep in it and in such survival mode we're not going to see it till it's till it's already come past and we've already lived through it and be like oh wow everything crashed i guess we've got something all new to all new to build now or all new to to get used to now um, and what and at the same time have you read have you read david montgomery's dirt the erosion of civilization I've civilizations started. Yeah. I, yeah. Beautiful book, beautiful yeah. book, Uh, fantastic read, just kind of following the way that we chase fertility and then uh, erode fertility in agricultural practices throughout time. And I think that, I think that we do have an awareness of what's happening. I, you know, you could call it an eco gnosis, right? That there is a sense of, the sixth mass extinction event, that there is a sense of the loss of biodiversity, the loss of fertility that echoes not just in the soil, but also in the human organism and in all interconnected life around us, right? As we see 20 billion tons of topsoil lost each year in the United States, we also see the decline in sperm counts over the last 50 years. We see a 1% decline in testosterone year over year since 1960, that we are directly tied into this place. And you are experiencing, I think, loss. And I think that so many of us would say that there's just sort of there's something happening that we can't describe within us and without us. And I think that thing is, is 
a sort of sense of grief or awareness of what is happening and that being in the maelstrom, as you put it. Fertility drives the bus. Whether we're talking about, hey, look, okay, if we're talking about cows, fertility drives the bus. If you can breed 100% of your your cattle on a really low input system, they're fertile on a low input system. And that fertility is driving the bus. Mm. Soil fertility drives the bus. Drives the bus. It all comes back to fertility and reproductive rate. And in human beings, that's been falling. Like we we got some issues. Like they're... But I think that and I think fertility, too, is also, I mean, analogous to a sort of aliveness or fecundity, um, not just of literal propagation of a species, but also of our own felt sense of aliveness and connection. Felt sense (laughs) of aliveness. Right. I like this term aliveness because I think it encompasses, you know, not just joy, but also grief. Um, Just the whole, the whole spectrum, the whole continuum of the human experience. Felt sense of aliveness. I like it. Felt sense of aliveness. Great. Great. Uh, We, we, I going to start moving out of here. So let's talk about your podcast. So my podcast is Mind, Body, and Soil, and I like to say that it's an exploration of the threads of what it is to be humans woven into this earth, right? And it's so much of what we talked about today. It's a little bit of agriculture. It's a little bit of history. It's a little bit of philosophy. It's a little bit of all the ways in which we are interconnected and the way that all of these relationships are relating with one another. It's sort of finding those hearts of connection and interbeingness that we experience and using a lot of different lens lenses to look at them. You know, whether that's more more science-based, more philosophy-based, more history-based. We're all the same stuff. We're all the same stuff. We are all made out of the same matter and it is just recycling in and out of one another throughout deep time. And I am I am constantly struck by this fact as somebody that, you know, raises raises almost all of my own food for the year, right? That that mycorrhizal fungi harvest minerals from rocks that are just stardust compressed throughout deep time that become plant tissues, that become animal tissues, that become my tissues, you know, that will then go back into a state of decay and back into that cycle. And so it, we're just kind of borrowing our constituent elements for this really, really short journey here on Earth. I was just, we're, we're a being made of borrowed matter living on borrowed time. Mm, yes, that precisely. Wow, that one was pretty deep. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so tell me some more about your butcher shop. Yeah. Western Daughters in Denver, Colorado. Um, What to say about the butcher shop? So we break down whole animals 
And that allows us to get a bit of a different yield. Speaking of yields, you know, industry standard at packing houses is about 67%. At Western Daughters, we get 87% yields. And so it's really, really pushing what we can do. And then we make bone broth and we make bacon, we make sausages, and we work with farmers and ranchers across the front range that are doing you know, 100% grass-fed and finished beef and lamb and pasture-raised pork and chicken and have for the last 10 years where we've given over $6 million back to farmers or ranchers. So 50 cents of every dollar that you spend at the shop goes back to a farmer or a rancher. 30 cents goes back to our employees. And then we're trying to figure out what it would mean if we can continue on on that that leftover 20 cents. Um and so we're kind of in this process of figuring out how how the butcher shop works. And then we have an associated restaurant as well, where we do all of this through the lens of nutrition, right? So no seed oils, everything is cooked in animal fats and everything is, you know, we make coffee with uh, local grass-fed dairy, um, just a real consideration of all of our sourcing, even down to salt, right? Like we get salt from Utah, and so I love to kind of just play the game of where where everything comes from. Sense of place. Is, is there maybe an apartment next door that I could come? <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty magical. It's 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 a pretty it's a pretty fun thing. Yeah, I just you know, knowing knowing where every single thing on your plate comes from, mm -hmm. and not just that, knowing where every single ingredient came from that was used to cook and prepare all that food like where did this olive oil come from mm. where did the salt come from mm -hmm. what's the name of the farm that grew my peppercorns yep like i don't know if you can actually do that with pepper but it would be cool we don't use a lot of pepper. And I think that's that's kind of part of the place thing, right? And it, it, we do to some degree, right? And at the butcher shop, there's a little bit more of that and some some sausage recipes. But there is a sense of like, can we? how much can we get from place? How much can we understand the hands that touched our food throughout that journey, all the way down to the people that were, were picking it? And I love to play this game too with salt, right? We use Redmond salt out of Utah. And so it's mined salt. And so that means that it's free of microplastics because a lot of sea salt has a decent amount of microplastics in it these days because we have this hyper object that is all the plastic that has been created on Earth that is, you know, degrading in the oceans. And so just kind of teasing at all of those things. And I mean, so much of what we've talked about today, right, is how do you look at the energy accounting or the sourcing as far back as you can go? And how far back do you go? There's a limit. And I think that this is fun. And it is also fun to come at it from the perspective. So like, you know, we make our own, we have coffee, which means we have to have an alternative milk. But we talk a lot about not having almond milk because of how much water it takes to grow an almond. <laughs> and how maybe that doesn't make sense in the high desert. I, it, what kind of alternative milk does make sense? None. None, okay. but and, you have to have it because at the end of the day, sometimes you're, sometimes you're just stuck. Somebody will come in that claims that they, that they have a lactose intolerance and they will demand, they will demand oat milk. Yeah. So we, we make our own oat milk without seed oils, because this is the other thing that I think has become very pervasive um, from a health standpoint is the rise of seed oils. This is canola oil, grapeseed oil, peanut oil. 
uh, all of these different oils and they have a really high omega-6 to omega-3 ratio. And, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, we have about a one-to-one, one-to-two omega-3 to omega-6 ratio. That is now in the United States about, estimates put it between one to 16 and one to 23. So just a massive amount of omega-6 fatty acids that are in these hyper palatable foods we've been talking about throughout this that you find at the Dollar General store. And our very cells are changing because we're made out of we're made out of place. And even if those places are flung all over the world, and even if those things are are highly processed, we are still made out of them. So you'll see that the cell membrane generally has about a six to seven percent composition of omega-6 fatty acids that allows it to have a better fluidity. And that now looks more like 30%. And so the this is this is radically changing us at a level, right? Because we we are our food. I think about this a lot from an intimacy level, right? We take in nutrients and they cross a one cell wall thick barrier inside of our intestines and become us. Those components that we were talking about, those borrowed elements become us. And so it's something we like to look at and play with and then also not take too seriously at Western Daughters. Okay. While you're, uh, while you're talking, I wrote down a couple things. So we've talked about like when you commoditize something, you know, you lose, you know, the, the, the terpenes and the phytochemicals and the flavonoids. Yeah. I, I just, I wrote down, uh, commodity flavor washout hmm. so you know how it is like you go get one of your chickens out of your backyard mm-hmm. and you butcher it mm-hmm. you can go to the store you can buy the same thing in a tyson smithfield purdue pride package right yeah there is a 100 percent difference in taste they're not even the same product yeah, it's hard no. it's hard to make the argument that they're the same product I, and i would agree and it's like that when we're talking about my pasture finished grass fed beef that comes from the red Hills, I mean, really versus anybody else's grass fed beef that, you know, yes, it can stand in a feedlot and eat corn silage and alfalfa and be technically grass fed. And I have some problems with that. I do too. Um, but yeah, my, my meat's going to taste different from that, which is going to be way different from a corn soy feedlot animal. Which is going to be different still. Your meat that you raise in Kansas is going to be different than the meat that I raise in upstate New York because of the different forage. Yes. And it will taste totally different. Totally different. You know, we get sold on, like, I don't want to blame McDonald's, but it's kind of like McDonald's. McDonald's went coast to coast. Mm -hmm. Same store, same food. The appeal Mm -hmm. of McDonald's was not that you could get an awesome cheeseburger. It's that you could get the same cheeseburger, no matter where you were. You could get that three of 10 cheeseburger everywhere. And it's exactly the same, no matter where you are. Yes. So when McDonald's goes to buy pickles, they want all their pickles that they're going to sell from New York to Kansas, to Washington, to Southern California. They want all of their pickles to taste the same. They want all of their onions to taste exactly the same and all the meat complete homogenization yes and 
when we have that degree of homogenization, we lose the sense of place. We lose the sense of where did this come from? When, when I eat a piece of meat that came off of my ranch, I can taste the pasture that I got them out of. Like I'm eating it and this vision in my head, like I have a movie playing in my head mm. while I'm eating that meat of the pasture they spent the last 45 yes. days in. So not only do you have something that tastes of place and that has the constituents of place, those phytochemicals that we have talked about, but it has another nutrient that I think is a little bit more esoteric, but equally important. It has a nutrient of story because you have a story that is associated with that that steak, that burger that you just told me about, that you have a picture of the pasture in your mind. And I think that story is just as important of a nutrient in many ways as all of those other nutrients that are having a conversation with our biology about the place that we are in. That's a mic drop moment, young lady. Nutrient of story. <laughs> I, I love it. <laughs> I love it. And I think that that is a great, I think that's a great way to end. Nutrient of story. Something that, that ties in really well with something I've been saying now for a couple of years. Shake the hand that feeds you. Absolutely. Shake 100%. The Shake the hand that feeds you. And then you can, then you can learn and, and get that nutrient, the nutrients from the story. Yes. I like that. Me too. All right. Kate Cavanaugh, did I forget anything today? No, absolutely not. This has been this has been an immense pleasure. Like, let me tell you that I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. This has been a lot of fun, and I don't feel like I talked about hardly anything in my notes that I wrote down, and I loved it. Those are the best. Sometimes I think those are the best when you just completely diverge from any any plan you thought you had. That means the conversation in the present is just so. Do I look like a guy with a plan? <laughs> Well, I am not a lady with a plan either. All right. Well, that being said, um, my plan now is to go see how muddy it is on the ranch and go count my calves. Well, it is. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Um, enjoying count, counting your calves. I hope it's muddy because I hope it's it's damp enough to be muddy. I'm looking forward to complaining about the mud the rest of the day. Yep. Yep. I think All that's right, an important point. Okay. Hey. Thanks for joining me. It's been a lot of fun. Brian, it's been a pleasure. All right, gang, go kill the week. Get after it. Bye.